This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Symphony of Profound Knowledge. And joining me is author Edward Martin Baker. Sir, welcome to the program. Thank you. This is a, a, a book of 330 pages. Your background is not specifically as an author. It's not something you started out in life to pursue. You are writing really about the writings or the inspiration of W. Edwards Deming. He was a, a leader. I have posted or put down these words to perhaps describe him. His interest, his background was music, management, and mentoring. Would that be a good descriptive? That's pretty good as a summary. And who was Edwards Deming? Edwards Deming was born in 1900. Uh, he had education in statistics and mathematics and engineering and physics. Uh, he got a Ph.D. from Yale, by the way. Hmm. Um, he came to the attention of uh, America uh, during the 1980s when, uh, as people may recall, there was an awful recession here, particularly in the automotive industry. Correct. And there was a, a hour and a half documentary on NBC called the, the uh, "If Japan Can, Why Can't We?" And about one third of that show, uh, produced by Claire Crawford Mason, was given to Deming and how he had helped the Japanese after World War II regain their economic uh, strength. So of course he began to get all these calls from uh, managers in different companies, including Ford, and. He needed to be convinced that foreign management was serious because it would involve quite a commitment. Finally, in October of 1980, a number of Ford executives visited him, and I guess they convinced him to visit Ford. He began a relationship with Ford in January 1981 when he went up to the boardroom and basically read them the riot act. He said, if you're serious about improving quality and uh, increasing sales, uh, you should change your way of thinking and, and managing and, uh, and for, it, it all started from then. For, for disclosure, you were an executive with Ford at the time. Yes, I was with Ford for 20 years. I finally ended up uh, in the quality office. And, in fact, in February of 1981, I wasn't yet in the quality office, but uh, I went to a, a meeting that Deming attended, and afterwards I spent some time with him and told him about my interest in improving quality of, of products. And... Um, Next thing I knew, I was in the quality office. You not so, only were in the quality office, but you had and struck up a long, lifelong relationship, at least from that point forward, to, to Mr. Demings. Very fortunate, yes. Uh, I participated at Ford in some outside uh, seminars with him, 70 to my count. And um, the last few years of uh, my time at Ford... Uh, I managed his relationship with Ford, his interaction, his scheduling, and so on. But I got to spend a lot of time with him and knew him very well. How did he? How did he approach life? Obviously, he was a brilliant man. He he was uh, involved in music, and I 
uh, noted in reading some of your book passages that he had uh, scored the uh, a new score for the Star Spangled Banner to optimize a wider range of singers. Uh, I would be probably included in that. I'm a bass singer when I sing. Uh, how how is it that he had such a wide ranging interest? Everything from the creative to the practical. Well, that's that's the genius of the man. Um, he uh, he was a talented person in so many respects. He was a music theorist, first of all. So uh, he, I guess he sung in church, and he, he just had uh, all these, these influences. He appreciated, he appreciated culture very much. You know, he used to visit Japan uh, from the 1950s onward. Well, he started there in 1946. He was brought over with the General MacArthur's Reconstruction Group, and uh, he got to meet some of the Japanese, and uh, he ended up giving seminars there. And he kept being invited back. In fact, they, they did create something they call the Deming Prize. They still have it today for companies and individuals that exceed in quality. So he had many visits to Japan. And he, he used to write about the culture. In one of his visits, he discusses um, the beauty of the way they make noodles. And he had two pages devoted to that. Really? So he was very interested in culture and very interested in human relationships. A fascinating person, obviously. This is not really a biographical sketch necessarily of Mr. Deming, though. The subtitle on this talks about the score for leading, performing, and living in concert. You have really approached this as a business, uh, 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 what's the word, primer, I guess would be a, a word that's used in the in the distant past. But it's a book that can be a reflective look at business and general lifestyle uh, growing in uh, becoming more effective at what you do. Yes, thank you for that summary. It's exactly right. Uh, I think he was misunderstood in the scope of his knowledge and what he was trying to accomplish. In the 80s, he was categorized as the father of total quality management, and he really didn't like that. It was quite a narrow category. Uh, he tried to improve not only business and mainly through creating leaders, but relationships in all organizations, within and without. Very much concerned with human relationships. He was uh, a very spiritual individual, even though he was trained in engineering and physics. And uh, his whole aim was to get people to work together for the greater good, because he saw one, if they achieved the greater good, they would be helping themselves. All through his life, his teaching really came from something he didn't he didn't articulate until later on. It was called profound knowledge. Mm-hmm. He finally put it all together in the late 80s, and he called what he was teaching profound knowledge, which was a different mental map for 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 understanding systems. Um, he, he wanted people in all walks of life and in management to understand that they are part of, although he didn't use the term, part of an ecology and that everything was related, and everything you did had consequences, and you should understand those consequences. Now, Dr. Deming was a profound teacher and uh, leader. He forged a relationship with you and asked you to share that information with the world. Now, is it also true that he did not personally write any books or no books that he uh, penned personally? Well, first, he wrote many books on sampling uh, up through the 1940s and early 50s. He was the world's leading authority on sampling. Right. But then, uh, as he began to get renowned in the uh, in the late 70s in the U.S., uh, 
uh, he began to write books. He wrote two major books uh, that were quite different from his earlier books. The books they were books for for management, uh, were quite popular. One, the first one, which was published in 1986, was called Out of the Crisis. And then he had a second one in uh, 1993 and uh, was republished after his death in 1994. So um, he did write two major books that really were the primary influences on um, on management. Before then, they were more technical books uh, on a sampling and statistics. He was also one of his major contributions to society was his teaching about variation and that understanding how things vary, whether it be in manufacturing or any organization, can help a person distinguish between local effects, those that just occur occasionally, and effects that are performance that are due to a system that are beyond the control of the individual. This is why he, he was really upset when employees were blamed for everything that went wrong, when in fact, People did not, management did not have the, the knowledge, profound knowledge, to look at the system and see where the system was contributing, whether it be defective parts by a supplier or primarily a human resource management system, which uh, demotivated and dismayed many employees through their systems of rating and ranking and grading. Yeah, he he approached you and asked you to write about his teachings and about his perspective. Do you think it's because he felt you could convey that to the common man, perhaps, better than he? Well, I was shocked when he first asked me to write a book, and then he continued to ask me to write, and I kept telling him that I would just be repeating what I learned from him. He said, no, no, Ed, it would be your perspective, and people need to see things from different perspectives. Well, I struggled with that for many years after he passed away, and I finally came to realize that I had something to say that would put his teaching and put the man in a, in a different perspective, and that would be in the context of his, uh, his music. That would be the framework, the structure for his theory of profound knowledge. Incredible idea. Now, Dr. Deming was a unique person, obviously. Did you keep notes that were contemporaneous uh, with, with your relationship with him, or how did you, how did you put all of these uh, diversified facts and, and ideas together? I did uh, make notes, uh, plus I have correspondence from him. But every time he, he said something I hadn't heard before, I did, I did write it down. Hmm. In fact, I even have that index card from 1988 when he said, Ed, you've got to write that book. Plus, of course, <laughs> he did so many seminars, which uh, some can be accessed on the, uh, the Deming Institute, Deming.org, uh, which is now run. The executive director is his uh, grandson, Kevin. And, uh, yeah, I did that. I had a whole file of ideas, and I also combined them with, with some of the other teachings of system thinkers that people knew about, such as Russell Lakoff, who was a good friend of Dr. Deming's. In reading the book, the, 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 the reader, are they going to be able to understand the basic concepts? Uh, did you approach this on a, what I'd call a very personable and simple uh, approach, or what was the underlying way that you, uh, you approached this subject? Uh, I try to make it non-technical and personable and humorous when it re- reflected Dr. Deming's humor. Yeah, I try to make it quite conversational. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very digestible, I believe. 
Well, how would you describe it? Who's your audience? Uh, who's going to benefit the most from this? Is this something that everyday guy that uh, maybe punches a clock nine to five is going to find some nuggets of truth in there, or is this management only? Everyone, everyone, every human being who is interested in their life and the way they're living and the people around them should appreciate this book. You mentioned uh, people that work every day. Yes. The, fi- the best, the, se- the seminar that, he used to conduct these four-day seminars. And, and one time we arranged for um, him to do the seminar for union employees that work for Ford. And so we had hundreds and hundreds of people from the plants. And he would give his lecture, and then there would be, a, after two hours, there would be a short break. And people didn't move. They didn't run out the door for coffee. Mm. It turned out that he was telling them how they were living and all the problems they were facing that weren't their problems but were system problems. And he, he really moved them. He really moved them emotionally. And he told me later that that was the finest seminar he ever gave and the most meaningful one to him. He, he was a, a stage performer also for, from, some de, from some perspectives. Talk about his performance on stage. Dr. Deming, you talk about the red bead demonstration. What was that and, and how did it impact people? That was a simulation of a production process where uh, he called people up from the audience. Some would be uh, production uh, operators and some would be inspectors, and they would sample from a a bowl of beads, and he would tell them, now, the red beads are defects and the white ones are okay. I want you, I'm sending an objective here that you don't pick any defectives. If you pick a defective, you'll be fired. Well, of course, the process was a random sampling, a mechanical sampling process, and they couldn't avoid picking red beads, but he would fire those who picked a certain number of red beads, showing that people would be punished and fired for things they had no control over. Hmm. And he demonstrated which things were random variation and which were in their control by developing a control chart and um, showed through the theory of variation how we mismanage and that if somebody wanted to be a good manager of people, they must understand how things vary. And it's not just in production. It's in any organization, from health care and education, uh, you name it, it applies because it's universal. And you've used the music analogy in order to weave all of these stories and ideas together. Yes, I, I wanted a structure that would do that. I didn't want to just repeat uh, his structure for the system of profound knowledge, which had four components, uh, theory of knowledge, theory of variation, knowledge of psychology, and uh, what's the fourth one? Good good question. I don't know that I've gotten that far in the book. This is, uh, this is a wonderful read, though. It, it does uh, personalize and humanize someone that was very uh, complex in his uh, personal and emotional makeup and also a tremendous leader. Is there any other books in the marketplace that uh, cover not only Dr. Deming but others uh, or this philosophy in the way that you have? I don't think so. I certainly referenced a lot of books and cited a lot of authors and philosophers. Uh, if there's one, one scholar, management consultant, that I would recommend would be the late Dr. Russell Acoff. He's a genius. Uh, I had the opportunity to spend time with him both at Ford and and in, in venues outside of Ford, uh, I would certainly recommend reading 
Russell Acoff's work. What is it about Dr. Deming's work that you feel makes it relevant today? Again, his, his philosophy deals with how we relate to each other in organizations and in life. He was very much concerned not only with the material success of organizations, but with the spiritual success. Uh, he was a very spiritual man, a religious man, who presented a way of living that is timeless. In other words, people would say, well, you know, he was popular in the 1980s and uh, he's no longer relevant. But he's more relevant today, given the economic situation the world is facing, than he was in 1980. People like Deming don't come along very often. There's something for everyone. So even though he was born in 1900 and uh, passed away, I guess, in the late 80s or early 90s, you obviously feel his contribution remains timeless. Yeah, absolutely. We know there are philosophers that lived hundreds of years ago and actually religious leaders that we still get tremendous knowledge from. And I think he was one of those. For anyone that is in business or wants to be in business and be successful in life, this is a book that they should get. The title, again, is The Symphony of Profound Knowledge, W. Edwards Deming's score for leading, performing, and living in concert. You've also described him as a moral philosopher, a prophet, virtuoso, and sage with profound insights into the management organizations and the art of leadership and living. That's a mouthful, but it also does describe your book beautifully. 330 pages, sir. Where can my listeners get a copy? of this? Through Amazon or any other online bookstore, and uh, through the Deming Institute, Deming.org, or through Aileron. I, I should mention, of course, that Aileron, whose chairman is Clay Mateel, whose president is Joni Fetters, who he founded Aileron in 1996 to educate pretty much owners of private companies. And he created this institute, which is now outside of Dayton, Ohio. It's a magnificent campus. And Clay appreciated Deming's teaching and is trying to include his teaching not only in the way he manages Aileron, but in what he teaches the people that come to learn from Aileron. It wouldn't have gotten done if they didn't uh, provide that support. So um, I very much appreciated their help. Book to be ordered through Aileron. Also. Through Aileron. And that is spelled A-I-L-E-R-O-N for those who are doing a search online. Thank you, sir, for joining me and uh, sharing the story of Dr. Deming and your work that you have uh, completed, the title of which is The Symphony of Profound Knowledge. They can also do a search under your name, Edward Martin Baker, the author, and find out about this and other works that you may uh, pen in the future. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Jay. Appreciate that. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern.
Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Customer Karma. Why stop at a one-night stand when you can have a lifetime relationship with your customers? And the author is Arjun Sen, and Arjun joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Arjun. Hi. Good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me on the show. Great to have you with us. Now, customer karma, I think we all know, have somewhat of a feeling about karma, but I think it would be really good for you, from your point of view, to define it from your point of view. What is good karma? You know, my definition of karma comes from learnings from my grandma. She would tell me stories growing up, and one of the things she would instill in me is karma is all about what you do. It's all about the focus on the word is about action. And based on what you do, you get reaction back. So in some ways, it is very similar to Newton's third law of physics, which talks about every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But the only difference in the concept of karma is causality, which is you need to do great karma to your customers or in life, not because you expect the results, but just because it is the right thing to do. And by doing the right thing, good and right things happen. Absolutely. And you put yourself in the best position to get results back. I like what you say. Good karma is cultivated by heartfelt good action. So people will really feel that sincerity from you. Totally, absolutely. And that's one of the things which are very important is if you and I were in a business dealing, for me to truly understand what Steve needs is incredibly important. And that's the reason for me to engage from my heart. Without that, it would become giving you service level one with option two mechanically, which does not touch you. So what you talked about is very important is good karma from the heart. Good karma from from the heart. And I think we can all relate on a real basic level. We're talking about relationships, it doesn't matter whether it's business, family, friendship, uh, just the meeting that new person, uh, you know, in, a, in a, a store or at a restaurant or in a business setting. It's all about how we treat others. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about this, I guess, one thing of this real-life relationship, customer relationship you can't put business relationships away in some kind of a business box. It's a real-life relationship, as you emphasize. So tell us about the importance of first impression. So to me, just like if you meet a person, the same way with a business, when a customer comes in, the first instant the customer decides whether this relationship or there the brand has any connection or availability with the person. So that is incredibly important to manage because this happens spontaneously 
from deep inside. The same way in a date, the first impression, at the end of the first impression, you put the person in one of three buckets. One, what am I doing here? Versus, wow, I see amazing potential. Versus, I don't know, let's see how it goes. So the first impression is a great place to start. So it is a process. It needs to be carefully not only thought through, but felt through. That's what I'm hearing from you. Again, it all comes from feelings from the heart. Absolutely. You've written your book in a corporate language that we can relate to. Now, there's many uh, business books out there, and often, as you put it, they're really not relatable to what you're going through. So you've got a, a vast background. Tell us a little bit about your background so we can better understand how you can understand what we might go through. Yes, so to me, in the corporate world, I have been in the restaurant industry where every experience is created for every guest, one guest at a time. Started at Pizza Hut, then went to Boston Market, then Einstein Bagels, and then was at Papa John's. And after that, when I started corporate Uh, consulting with corporate world, I worked with a lot of hospitality, retail, and restaurants. And in every case, what I learned is something that you related to earlier was when we focus on customer relations, we always started with customers. But over time, what I realized is the relationship and the commonality about relationships, whether it is customers or human relationships every day, is similar. And once you get relationships, then it's very easy to see what you would do in the corporate world. And if I may give one quick example, once you see the relationship, if you were single, Steve, for a second, would you put an ad in a dating site with your picture with a coupon on it, (laughs) go out with me over the next two weeks and I buy you a drink? with a fine print up to $6. <laughs> so if you won't do that in a relationship, why are we trying to buy customer business in, in our transactions with these short-term gimmicks, which does not build the long-term relationship? So it's like you just pointed out in the restaurant world, every time a new customer walks through, that's a new person, a very unique individual, and they need to be treated that way. Absolutely. So to me, I look at marketing is very simple. It is an invitation from the heart. And if marketing is an invitation, and let's say if my family invited Steve, your family to our place, I could then greet you in one of two reactions. One is, wow, Steve, buddy, I can't believe you made it. So excited. Or the other reaction could be, really? You're back again? I can't believe it. So to me, the whole thing goes with connection from the heart and how do you respond? Because that's what the customer cares about. So it's about customer satisfaction. Yes, it is. What's the best way then to develop this long-term relationship when you're going to avoid these gimmicks, as you pointed out? What is the best way for having this continual relationship that literally is going to bring back the customer? And, of course, the bottom line, as you pointed out, and I think we all understand this, it's about the cash register ringing. 
Absolutely. You got it right. At the end, it's all about the cash register, how many times you open and how much money you put in. And if you start right there, the valuation of a customer makes us all change our perspective. If I had a coffee shop and you came in and asked for a free refill, and on the board it says $2 for a refill, I will hesitate giving you the refill. But on the other side, if I right away sit, pause for a second and realize Steve comes twice a week, every time spends you know, approximately $10, which is $20 a week, approximately $1,000 a year, which is $5,000 a year, the light bulb goes on. I realize my whole business success depends on you, Steve, which means instead of now making you look at the board which says refills are $2, I ask you to sit down by saying, Steve, would you just sit down for a second? I'll brew a fresh pot of coffee and bring it to you with the condiments. Because I really think that whole attitude shift changes. And I think once you feel it, you don't need user manual or anything else. You really need to put one customer at a time and business becomes incredibly successful. So you are using real life business scenarios to point out how to do this in your book. Absolutely. And to me, that's the part about the book is you would not find 23 laws of customer satisfaction because you know those rules and laws don't work. The book is more about you calling your corporate buddy who shares his success and failure stories. And I emphasize failures are equally important from success. So each person who reads the book will have their own takeaway on how to use it in their world. So there's no one solution, but I'm just sharing my experiences from different corporate experiences. Well, I want to read a couple of of, of folks who have read your book and have given you uh, quite a great review. One said, Arjun has a brilliantly simple way of looking at a business through the eyes of its customers. If more brands could do the same, true customer loyalty would be less elusive. That is, uh, I think, eye-opening, if you (laughs) pardon me, but through the eyes of its customers. That's the way we have to look at our business. Yeah, first of all, you know, I'm really flattered with the review. And if I take everything I've talked about in the book, to me, it's all about one reader. If one reader likes it and feels that he or she got value from the book and takes time to write this review, I really think, you know, the journey I started, I have accomplished. And I'm really fortunate and grateful that at least one person feels this way. And that, I think, is the power in every business, is one person at a time giving them what they need of actual true value that connects to them. Another reviewer said, after after reading Customer Karma, you will find it impossible to think about your customer interactions in the same old ways. It's more about, it's much more than just the pleasant hello and uh, how's everything and is everything uh, well with your product that we've shared with you. It's it's really, I guess it's a, 
as you've put it already, it's not a formula. It's a real-life interaction with sincerity coming from the heart. I, I guess that's the best way, as we've already pointed out. How else can you talk about it? Absolutely, and that's the part, if you look at, is in a relationship, no two days are the same, which means if you are living a relationship with your significant other with a user manual, it just doesn't work. This is not a train that goes online. It just flies anywhere and everywhere. There are everyday challenges, and that's the part where the reflection from the heart comes out. And the second thing, if I point out to this particular review, what the person reflected so well is once you get the commonality between relationships, and when I told you about the example of using a coupon in dating, you were amused because you know we don't do that. So I really think that is the power is once each person in our own way get the parallel of relationships, I really feel this would be life-changing for people because they cannot go back to the old way of customer service using a user manual. And as you point out, your book will not give the reader one road map for all situation. Instead, it is sure to trigger thoughts on what you can do differently. So that is your ultimate goal, is to help people get out of their comfort zone and start looking at customers in a much more sincere, heartfelt way. And absolutely. And I have fun doing it because, think, if you, when you read the review of the two you know, individuals who, it just hit, you know, hit hit me right deep in my heart. I just felt something amazing. And that is so addictive. So to me, I think that's exactly what each person, once they go a little bit outside their regular routine jobs and touch customers' lives, first of all, the values of the reward and the returns that they would get is immense. But more importantly, it just adds excitement and meaning to jobs, which I don't think exist in a routine, you know, just coming in, open a cash register, follow schedule A, B, C, D. It just doesn't, it's not there in that particular of a mechanical robot-like job. The title of the book, Customer Karma. We've been talking to the author, Arjun Sen. Arjun, what's the best way to get your book? You can get the book at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. It's also available at iTunes or anywhere you can get uh, digital copies of the book. You can also check the website of the book, Customer Karma, Karma with a K, customerkarma.org. Customerkarma.org. Well, thank you so much, Arjun, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve, for having me on the show. I truly appreciate this. You have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. 
By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled War Ready in My Father's Shadow. And joining me from Texas, near the Houston area, is author Mary Lou Darst. Welcome to the program, Mary Lou. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. Well, this is an interesting book. Most uh, most of my authors, a lot of authors, will write uh, biographical sketches and uh, and and uh, books mm-hmm. about their history and their life. It seems to be something sometimes that's a reflection or a, a way to honor parents or or upbringing. What was the purpose behind writing War Ready? Well, there were a couple of things. First of all, um, I began to think that maybe my grandsons should know the stories, know about their grandmother. And then I also wanted to honor my brother and my parents. Um, It was not such an easy life, and we did it. And um, I did want to honor my parents and my brother with the stories. And and thirdly, um, military families. not not much is given to military families. It's always right. the husband, the brother, the cousin, the men that go off to war, which are so deservedly of of um, credits. But military families uh, serve too in lots of different ways. Absolutely, you, your book really covers your upbringing till about age sixteen, when the military service, uh, I guess, dissipated in your family. Is that correct with your father? Yes. And, yes, and where was where, where was his primary service, and what time frame are we talking about? Well, we're talking like from the end of World War II through the cold to the almost the end of the Cold War. Uh, so, but I was born in 1943, and he was away. He was in the war in England, and then when he came back, we moved. Uh, we moved every 18 months, and sometimes twice in one assignment from one neighborhood to another. Something. Uh, we lived in Alaska. Uh, I went to the first grade before Alaska was a state, and then um, in the middle 40s. And then uh, we lived in Japan seven years after the war, and six years later we lived in Munich, Germany. Yeah, you, and in between, we lived in lots of states. <laughs> you also mentioned the different wars that your father was involved in. What was his capacity? Was he in leadership in these uh, military uh, assignments, or how was he? How would you describe it? He was an army engineer, and he never talked about his work or what he did. And we were not to ask. He, I I can't say, but he was. Uh, at one time, he was a commander in Japan when we lived there. Of of the engineers, he was something like that. He had terrific leadership qualities, so I would not be surprised if he were in leadership in many things. Would Would you call your observations of him in hindsight maybe PTSD that was uh, part of uh, part of that environment, that family uh, structure? Yes, my brother and I often talked uh, while I was doing the book, and uh, we both believed that. He had strong symptoms of PTSD, but like all men, all warriors, soldiers of that period, nobody talked about their experiences. 
Yes. No one talked about it. Yes, he he had some difficulty, especially with uh, with Korea, the Korean War. If I understand your your book correctly, right? We never even knew that he was in Korea. Wow! No one, my brother and I, no one said. And when we said goodbye to him, my mother was just dissolved in tears, and he left, and no one ever said. I mean, when he wrote letters or anything, no one ever said anything about Korea to us, and then. After about a year and a half, we were my brother and my mother and I were on our way to Nara, Japan, and he, he met us there. Interesting. And we did not know he'd even been there, my brother and I, until we were taking things out of his dresser after my parents had passed away. And we found at the bottom of drawer certificates and medals for service in Korea. Hmm. We just fainted. We couldn't believe it. You you have titled your book War Ready, and then the subtitle Mm -hmm. In My Father's Shadow. In My Father's Shadow has a significance to you. What is that? Um, I was in his shadow. (laughs) He was a strong (laughs) parent. Yes. He was military through and through, and he expected everyone around him to be the same way. And um, so that's that's probably where that came from. Did, did you? Did you? I, 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 as as is obvious in your book, you love your dad. But was there also an element of uh, concern or fear or uh, awe that yeah, also accompanied that? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that. A lot of that. Of the, of the time that you spent in traveling about the globe, which was your favorite place to live? I have to say, not at Japan. It, we, as I said, we lived there seven years after the war. It was so different. It was still, there was still a lot of old Japan there. The women were beautiful, kimono, zori and geita. Um, and there were, there were people in Western clothes. I mean, skirts and men with slacks and, and shirts. Um, but it was still very much old Japan. And um, very, very different. Everything was very different. And I was 10 years old. I was five feet tall. And I was taller than most Japanese people. Fascinating. Um, even the women who wore Zori and Geita. The Geitas were maybe three, maybe three, four inches off the ground. And I was still taller. And it was it was an amazing experience. Your observations of Germany. You also lived in Germany after the war. Right. About 13 years later. It was obvious that there had been an absolutely horrific war. 13 years later, there was still so much, so many, the ruins, you know, the, the bullets and all, the, all those things that, that you know about already. Yes. The history was still still evident. Right. You have right. also mentioned something that was, uh, I guess, curiosity in my reading aspect of it. You, on your final uh, return to the United States by ship, you were on board and right. uh, writing letters, and you looked up, and there was this strange-looking gentleman over in the corner that seems to be that seemed to be fascinated by you and your appearance. Share with my listeners a little of that story and uh, who that was. Well, you're kind to, to introduce that scene like that. It was Salvador Dali. 
the uh, the artist painter. Um, he was very dramatic looking, his little pencil thin mustache that curled on the edges, edges and stared, you know. And uh, my mother came and whispered to me while I was writing letters on the stationery of the ship, and uh, she said, that's Salvador Dali. And I said, who is he? Who is Salvador Dali? She said, an artist. And so I, I didn't look at him. I didn't know him. I didn't want him to stare at me. I finished writing, and I looked up, and he was still staring. But I think that was just his demeanor. Mm-hmm. And I, we, we saw them later in the in the lounge after supper. He was sitting with his lovely wife and still staring at everyone. So Amazing. that was his demeanor. He was a very intense yeah. an intense individual. Maybe yeah. making mental notes for, for sketches later. Who knows? You have uh, right. also included a lot of interesting photos in your book. Uh, where, which of the of the photos do you think our our readers are going to find most interesting? Well, there's some from Alaska with the snow, and um, there's a picture my mother took of us in the spring, and in the same in the same position in the same area, the front yard. In winter, it's just <laughs> covered with white and bundled up in padded. Um, winter winter snowsuits. Um, the ones from Japan uh, are most most special to me. Uh, there's a picture of us with our little maid Hatsi in front of the old Japanese house where we lived. Um, Hatsi was like a member of our family. She was so dear. And um, then there's one in the first chapter, first page of the story of. Punic, uh, with Mr. Gruckenberg, Helga, and myself, and we're all in bathing suits. Mm-hmm. Mr. Gruckenberg has on his robe. Um, the Gruckenberg family were family to us. They were so kind to us, and we did things with them, went places with them at their house and at our house. So they were they were like family to us. And if you don't mind my saying, um, in twenty. 20- we were invited to Munich to give a book talk and reunited with Helga and Gerhardt. Hmm. Um, invited us to their home. It, gosh, after 53 years, I can't tell you what that's like. And it's hard to think about it without crocodile tears, so I'll well, let it go. <laughs> your your book is has taken really, although it is a biographical sketch of your life and your family's life, it really could be looked at in some respects as a, a narrative or just a novel uh, because you've done a conversational style. Is that the best way to describe what you've done? Well, yes, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, I just felt like I was telling my story to people, but I was writing it down instead of telling it. Thank you. And how long did it take to complete? Well, um, like I said, I wrote two books at one time. And I was in a writing class and uh, at the time. And so I would say um, maybe four or five years. There was an incredible amount of emotion that I relived while writing that book and um, that I had not experienced um, growing up. And um, that emotion came forward and expressed itself 
and so it was a growing experience for me to do the book. I grew a lot as a person. As as a writer now, an author, looking back over what you have penned, is there something that came through that you didn't really plan on in the first place, uh, such as a, maybe an underlying message or a th- or something that will will encourage or inspire the reader? Well, that's very kind. Um, well, my relationship with my father uh, was very tricky, and that's um, that's very apparent in the book. Um, and in our relationships with people in other cultures, uh, that was a wonderful experience, and I'm intensely grateful for the travel experiences that we had. Um, living in other cultures, being part of that culture, learning languages. Um, it, it was just an incredible experience, and I hope that I've imparted that in the books that other people can see and realize how important it is to know other cultures. Well, thank you for sharing your memoir and the process of writing War Ready in My Father's Shadow. My guest, Mary Lou Darst. Mary Lou, my listeners will want to get a copy of this or need to get a copy of this. It's part uh, travelogue, part personal family history, and uh, just a, a good read. How do they get a hold of War Ready? Thank you kindly. Um, it's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and iUniverse.com. All three of those. Is there a possibility you have a website developed yet? I I do, but I don't have it within my brain. <laughs> okay, not a problem. They can Sorry. do a, they can do a search under your name. Uh, two two words or two names: Mary Lou L O U and Darst is spelled D A R S T. If they do a search under that, they will be able to also locate okay. uh, War Ready and probably your website. So, thank you again for joining thank me today you. and sharing your story. Blessings. Thank you kindly. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.